Welcome to the All People Podcast, where we talk all people all the time. I'm your host, Elisa Southall. My goal is to improve Canada and employee experiences, as well as company cultures throughout U.S. employers. We do this by leading with empathy, diversity, inclusion, equality, teamwork, and transparency. Come on this journey with me. And now, a word from our sponsors. Are you looking for an out-of-the-box solution for hiring talent? Look no further than the secret formula of hiring talent. Dot, dot, dot. It's not so secret. My ebook. I published this through Book Boom Learning, and this ebook covers a variety of topics all in the hiring space. I've worked with many hiring managers who all say, what is the secret formula of hiring talent? Well, I'm here to walk you through the hiring process, investing in your community, eliminating antiquated hiring practices, being the leader in pay, leveraging your resources, and success being only a few changes away. I think that if you are anybody who is looking to hire talent right now, maybe struggling to hire talent, this could be a really good resource for you. Let's change the game of hiring talent. Get rid of those old antiquated ways that we interview and go through the hiring process. And let's make it fresh and invigorating to get new talent and to get them in a more creative way. Go out today and purchase The Secret Formula of Hiring Talent, It's Not So Secret by Elisa Southall. That's me. It's only $8.99 on Book Boom Learning. I hope you guys enjoy the read. Let me know what you think. Drop a review or two on either the Book Boom Learning page or on my website. Let me know what you think of the ebook. Thank y'all. Bye. Thank you for listening to a word from our sponsors. And now, back to your episode of All People Podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of All People Podcast, where we talk all people all the time. As always, I am your host, Elisa Southall, and I have the great privilege of being here today with David Morales. David, say hi. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on, Elisa. No problem. Now, David, tell us a little bit more about you, who you are, and what you'd like to share with our community first. Sure thing. Uh, So my name is David Morales. Uh, For those Spanish speakers, David Morales. Uh, I am a child of God. I'm a healthcare executive, I'm a father, a husband, a son, uh, and an Amazon bestseller uh, of a book named American Familia. That's awesome. That's super exciting. Um, I appreciate you sharing all of that. You know, you said it perfectly. You had a quote in your um, community spotlight, and maybe not a quote, but at least a, a saying that you live by, which is that we're not defined by, you know, who we are at work. Um and, and it's interesting because neither your work nor you, right, is what you say, um, do you just define a living or defines you as a living person. And so it was interesting because I found that myself in terms of, you know, people will say, well, tell us about yourself. And it's like, so we're trying to figure out which hat we wear, right, which one we're going to share. But you can be all things at all times. Yeah, that's right. You know, sometimes I hear this notion about, um you know, work is my priority. Um, And I respect that. I like to encourage people to think about um, you, your family, in my case, my faith, Jesus Christ, and my family is my priorities. Um, But I also like to remind people that work doesn't necessarily define who you are. Um, You define who you are, um, and what your priorities are. And again, in my case, it's my faith and my family. And so um, often I like to encourage people to just step back and think, look, what matters most to you? But if it's truly your work, that's great. Um, And that opens up a whole different conversation about perspective and prioritization. Yeah, it's just neat to to have that thought because we get defined, we get labeled a lot by different people, right? Um, You know, spouse, daughter, right? All these things and, and which of those labels mean something to you, right? Or which means more to you or, you know, having those things and understanding who you are, right, can be really helpful. Um, and that leads me into, you know, you are, you do work at a company, right? We, we don't have to get into that. But one of the things that when you were on a panel that was really impressive for me is you talked about this leadership model that is really part of the modern age, right? Um, it's really about empathy and compassion and uh, communication and trust and honesty, right? And I, and I loved all of that. Can you share sort of what inspires you to want to be that type of leader? 
we talk often about leadership. And I truly believe that all of us cast a leadership shadow, whether we're at work, whether we're at home, in the community, et cetera. We cast a leadership shadow. In other words, people get an impression of who we are based on how we operate, how we speak, how we behave. And so the conversation you're talking about was a panel where uh, one of the questions was, what's, um, how do I lead and uh, what's it like to lead during a difficult time, et cetera. Um, and so I talked about two fundamental things out of several, but I focus on two. The first one is creating a culture of kindness and empathy. If you first focus on culture, there's an old quote, I forget who, who coined it, uh, culture eats strategy for lunch. Um, I grew up listening to that and I never forgot it. And so how well, the type of culture we create, the type of culture we exude has an influence and casts a shadow on others around us. At work, I lead a, an organization, the company's name is Unicare. Um, um, at the organization and wherever I try to work or wherever I am, I try to cast a shadow of empathy, kindness, compassion, uh, collaboration. How people engage us as individuals uh, is really based on what foundation you establish or, or what you exude or what they perceive. And so when you create a culture of kindness and empathy, being in a service organization, people will appreciate kindness, empathy, service, et cetera. Those folks who are your members, your clients, but also internally, I can't serve you if I don't have a servant heart or create a culture of kindness and empathy. And so there's this mutually valuable relationship you establish both internally in your company, but also externally. The second thing I talked about was having a focus, a keen focus on the type of community we create. We have to be really invested in our community. We have to be active participants in our community and understand that our actions, whether we take action from a corporate perspective or as an individual to engage in our communities for the betterment of our communities has a profound impact on not just today, but tomorrow and several years down the line, the future. And so engaging in the community, whether we're active participants or not, has an influence on the outcome of the type of community we want to create or live in. Yeah. And, and David, honestly, I think for me, this is really what you and I, what helped me align with you, right? You know, for me, I, I preach empathy all the time on this podcast. I am a firm believer that empathetic leaders are much more successful much more um, in demand in terms of people want to work for them. People want to work with them. Right. Um, and so I'm a big proponent of empathy, but just like you, I believe it's community, whether it's allyship, whether it's community and upskilling the community, right. And figuring out how you can enhance your community. I I'm right there with you. And I think that those two pillars really make you a an extremely strong leader. And I am sure people in your uh, organization would back that up. Well, thank you for that. The one piece that I don't want to miss um, is family. Mm -hmm. I also mentioned at the time, because we talked about housing and um, remote and hybrid, is this concept that we have here at Unicare called Family First. Um, our job here is to maintain a successful company, is to service our members, to help our members access the services they need. Um, but at the same time, we also have to prioritize our family. Family should also come first, right? And so if our family home is comfortable, is good, is in good working order, is healthy, then we bring a very healthy approach to our work. So that's another point that I didn't want to miss. And I appreciate you not wanting to miss that because often there's this notion that whatever, is, whatever we're dealing with at home or in our personal lives should stay at home. And unfortunately, we're not built to compartmentalize in that way. We are people with emotions and feelings. Um, and until, you know, we move into a robotic, I don't know, presence, uh, we're not going to be able to separate that. And so the things that are impacting us at home are also impacting us when we come to work. Absolutely. There's no question. Um, the one part that um, we as people have to keep in mind is, um, yes, Things that happen at home will have an impact on us. But often what I try to tell my team is, look, we 
yes, we're dealing with some sometimes issues at home, but we can't let those issues affect our members. So we have to be thoughtful about how we deal with those issues. Now, if the issues are so significant that our team member really needs time, time to be at home, by all means, be at home and make sure that, that the issues you have going on at home are addressed and you feel good about them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm right there with you. One of the other things that you were really passionate about, and I loved this perspective, was entrepreneurship. We were talking about the future of work at this symposium that we were in. And what I think is interesting is we as a society, um, we are constantly pushing, right, uh, employer-based, you know, employee-based, uh, you know, tasks and employee-based degrees, right? We're like, oh, go get a marketing degree. And what is your dream company? And do this. And what is your dream company? Rather than saying, do you want to be an entrepreneur? Like that, we need more of them, right? Yes, we need employees and employees are great. But we need more people who have these visions that already exist in their brain and learning how to execute on them. And so I'd love to hear, you know, what is your perspective on entrepreneurship? Yeah, great, great question. Um, Let's dive into this space here. Um, So if you look at the history of the United States, um, where did some of the greatest innovations in our country's history come from? They came from entrepreneurs. They didn't come from government. They didn't come from uh, a large company establishment coming in with an idea. Maybe in recent history, some have, but even Apple, right, started uh, in a garage. And so entrepreneurs are the lifeline of America. The largest employers in America are actually small businesses, right? Most people are employed by small businesses, people who are coming up with wonderful ideas or supporting people with a service that makes sense or adds value. And so for context for the listeners or or the viewers, the conversation we were having was around how to, um, you know, education uh, as an important aspect or element to encourage, uh, uh, to help employers find employees. And the part that I added was, let's not forget entrepreneurship. Schools should be also teaching entrepreneurship and financial coaching or financial skill, dexterity, right? Uh, So we know how to handle our money. And so I'm gonna dive into that a bit. The reason why I brought that up is I'll use my wife an example or my brother and his wife, they're entrepreneurs, They're, they're business people, they have their own companies. Uh, they've learned how to take something and make value out of it, right? They've taken risk and they're taking risk to grow a company and bring someone value uh, or have someone pay for that value. And so at the employee level, it's wonderful to have employees. Of course, that's important. But we also have to teach people how to think as an entrepreneur. How do you create a product that adds value or improves the lives of others that others are willing to pay for? That entrepreneurship mindset and skill must be taught. That is how new ideas get created. Entrepreneurs are the lifeline and the lifeblood of new companies, new products. So A, I strongly believe in an educational system that's going to encourage entrepreneurship. I also talked about financial uh, management, financial coaching, and financial literacy from this perspective. From the perspective of us as individuals learning how to make money with our own money. Uh, You don't build wealth by spending money. You don't build wealth by taking out loans. You build wealth by having your money create more money. Uh, And so those are the two things that I talked about, right? Entrepreneurship as an essential element of a healthy free enterprise. And then second, learning financial coaching or financial literacy In other words, us being able to learn how to use our money to make more money. Yeah. And, and again, in alignment with what I do, right. And, and I think it's a perfect blend is I'm a big proponent of, you know, teaching these skills that, that individuals need. Right. And I, and I had mentioned, you know, even job readiness. Right. And again, those are more for employer employee based mindsets. Right. But even if we do things like how to complete your taxes, right? How to make strong business decisions, how to create a business plan, how to build capital, right? Like all of these things that we could be teaching and and somebody who's getting a business degree may want to go that route, right? But even if they don't get a degree in college, because we well know that you don't have to, right? You know, you mentioned Apple people, Bill Gates, right? All of those people may not have gone and gotten a college degree because they were being entrepreneurs, right? 
So it's not a bad thing to say, even in these high schools, middle schools, tech schools, whatever they are, creating ways that we can educate people on these fundamental sort of principles you're talking about versus saying, hey, you should strive to work for a specific company. You have these great ideas. Why not do something with them? That's exactly right. You know, my, one of the things that my wife always talks about, again, she's a financial coach, financial advisor. One thing she always, always talks about um, as um, she came here from the Dominican Republic when she was 16 years old, I'm going to call her a newcomer, an immigrant. Um, she always talks about generational wealth building, right? Wealth doesn't happen overnight. Wealth happens over time. You need entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship skill sets. You need financial acumen, right? Learning how to use your money, not spend it, but learning how to grow it. And third, you need hunger, right? A work ethic, grit to figure out how to make things grow, how to make them valuable, et cetera. And so those are skills we have to teach uh, in order for America to keep growing uh, a class of entrepreneurships that are going to keep adding value. And I don't think that there's a shortage of ideas, right? And, and this is an interesting perspective, too, is that, you know, we get these companies that stifle ideas, they stifle growth, because they don't know how to, they don't know how to bring it forward. They don't know how to maybe create an initiative to bring things forward. And I think that that stifling continues to happen, right? When we get into those education systems, it's like, this is the curriculum, you should think this way, you should do it this way, right? And I'm part of that, you know, breed of people that says, but what if we did it this way over here, right? Because that's just how I, I think. And maybe I'm like, this is why I was destined to be an entrepreneur myself, because I'm always thinking in a different way. But those people that have this even like burning desire inside of them to do something outside of the normal or to, you know, have an organization that has this really strong product or service that's bringing, you know, really great value, right? Why are we stifling that rather than saying, you have great ideas, great perspectives. Let's foster that and figure out a way to give you all the skills you need to be successful. Yeah, I, I think you're touching on two really important points, Elisa. The first one is um, organizationally, how to leverage and harness people's creativity, um, entrepreneurship mindset, Um we as leaders or as managers or as company leaders have to do a better job of creating spaces for that to happen, to enable creativity, to enable new ideas to flourish uh, without fear of penalty, right? Um, that That is that, from a leadership perspective, that's a skill you have to learn, right? Because the best ideas come when you open up the floor and give people the trust and confidence to be able to share their ideas. So that is something I strongly encourage, number one. But the other point that you, you're raising that's really important and fundamental is at a higher level, the whole notion and importance of free enterprise, right? At the end of the day, we live in a capitalistic society in the United States, and I strongly embrace it. The idea that free markets and free enterprise as a way to live and think, et cetera, is, is really important. And let me define that because some people say, oh, wait a second, capitalism, time out. Let me define that. Remember, free enterprise is our ability to exchange goods freely. So something that Elisa has that I want, I'm going to ascribe a value to it and vice versa, right? You might have something that I might want that I want to pay something for. And so we have to get back to those fundamentals. How do we unlock the power of free enterprise in our country? How do we enable each other to think about value without fear of either uh, some aggressive level of regulatory oversight or some level of cost that, that, that impedes us from exchanging goods and ideas between and among ourselves? And so and this might be a question that's hard for you to answer, right? But as a business leader, you, you talked about that community piece. How can companies... Uh, be stronger at saying we want to promote entrepreneurship, right? We want to do something, improve an education, you know, something that they're learning in traditional education. We want to host a class, a seminar, a webinar, whatever it is to sort of enlighten, take those people that want entrepreneurship or say, I have a vision. Now, what do I do? Can employers and employees, I mean, employers and, and their leaders, right? Help bring those things to fruition. It's a great question. Um, so look, I, I'm going to say what I said at that panel where we met. I can only speak about uh, me, my perspective, or my organization. 
when it comes to this topic or any topic. And so my response is the following. There are many ways that entrepreneurs can get either funded um, or audiences. Let's talk about funding, right? There's banks, there's private equity, there's venture capital, et cetera, um, or self-pay, right? Self-start. Um, and so there's there's there are options on how to get your idea. The question is, what level of risk tolerance do you have as an entrepreneur to pursue, to pursue those funding streams or to do it yourself, right? So there's ways to, on the funding side, there's, there's, there's options, there's many options. Um, part of it, Alisa, is educating people about what those funding opportunities are, right? My wife always talks about this too. You know, we need to do a better job educating people about how to actually pay for their companies or their ideas. We typically don't talk about that. Uh, some of us think that it's only banks when it's not just banks, there's many ways of financing an idea. So that's that's part of the response. The other part of the response is we as individuals, back to your point about education, we need to teach people to be proactive and communicators. Proactive meaning, look, as an organization, I meet with local startups all the time trying to understand what's the next thing in healthcare, what's the next thing in primary care. Should we make an investment in those services, et cetera? I'm talking to two providers right now. We're going to make an investment in, uh, around primary care. Um, so be proactive about pitching your idea to companies or CEOs or CFOs or development leaders. Go pitch and don't be afraid to pitch. Um, as organizations, we we yearn and we always, at least on, at, I can only speak for us, we're always looking for our new ideas in healthcare. Um, related to that, we have to teach individuals or individuals need to empower themselves to communicate clearly. And this goes back to education. How we communicate an idea, we have to learn how to do that clearly, concisely so that we can communicate the idea, but also its value for not just for me, but for you, right? And so it goes back to this point of how do we empower people to become entrepreneurs, to be self-starters, critical thinkers, but also partly salespeople from the communication perspective. And I think what would be a really great class that that company or that schools could uh, implement is something like, you know, pitch fests or, you know, something like that where they could try it out on a panel of people that maybe work in the community, right? They develop this idea, this concept, and it can be something that's already created, um, but just something where they can practice doing some research and saying value. And, and these are the types of things that I wish that they would teach in school more. Sure, maybe some professions are going to need algebra or geometry or things like that, but why not teach these real world skills that then they can apply? Couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, I, I said this at a different panel. Um, I encourage that organization, um, again, a different panel. Um, I encourage them to go take a look at school curriculums. If those curriculums are not prioritizing entrepreneurship, math, science, engineering, critical thinking, and English communication skills, then we need to step back and say, so what are we teaching? If we're not prioritizing those six things at a minimum, then we've got to reevaluate what we're teaching our children. Because part of the future, right, of commerce, enterprise, economic growth circles around these six things at a minimum, at a minimum. Of course, social interaction, et cetera. But these first six, if they're not part of our curriculum, then I think we need to reevaluate how we're, how we're structuring curriculum. I agree. And one of the things I heard as a statistic a long time ago was the jobs that the um, that we are learning about right now in, in the world. Right. For those people that are in, still in um, middle school, high school, right. Traditional school. They're the jobs that they're going to work in or the careers that they're going to move into probably don't even exist right now. Right. The, especially those in elementary school. You know, if you look at the succession of things, those opportunities that they are dreaming to do may not even exist, but by the time they get there, they probably will, right? And so that's where the entrepreneurship piece, I think also is, is way more important because they may think it up and say, it's not here yet. How can I be the first? How can I make change? How can I do it different? And we have to just keep filling that, you know, that cup for them. Couldn't agree with you more, right? Open up the possibilities to people, you know, uh, my high school football coach, David Dempsey, who I still uh, am in touch with and respect very much, uh, used to sit, has many sayings that I still live by. 
But one of them was, if you can't see it, you can't be it. It's in my book. If you, he said this to me when I was in high school, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Wait a second. You mean if I don't have exposure to what's possible, then I can't really dream it? That's right. And so we have to open up the floor of possibilities to our students and to our young family members so they can dream about what's the future look like? What's next? And encourage them to go pursue and learn more about how to build that. And I talk about that a lot, too, in terms of representation matters, right? We're seeing it in TV and movies. We're seeing it, you know, we're having Little Mermaid be a, a person, a woman of color, right? And have it be different. Even in company cultures, right? What is the message you're sending when you have, you know, all white male cisgender leaders, right? So representation matters. Do people feel like they can grow to a leadership level in your organization? And so that whole concept he was saying, right? If people can't see themselves in whatever position in your company, are they even going to strive for that? Or are they going to leave and go somewhere where they can see it? Yeah, no question about it. Look, I, um, you know, I grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, Puerto Rico and then Lynn, Massachusetts. And um, all we knew was football and music, right? It wasn't until I got to college that I was able to understand, wow, there's a whole world of opportunity open for me. Um, thanks to my parents' hard work, thanks to my football coach, thanks to my teachers, uh, I was able to unlock a world of possibility, a whole new world, right? And so you're right. We have to enable others, whether you're from a low-income background, whether, you know, whatever race, ethnicity, et cetera, we have to unlock those opportunities for people to understand that the world is a much larger place than the zip code they live in. 100%. Speaking of music, you talked about how you used to lead a music band. Tell me a little bit more about that, because that's intriguing to me. Yeah, so one of my passions is music. Um, uh, I love all kinds of music, um, whether it's faith-based music, whether it's doo-wop, whether it's blues. Uh, and one of my big passions is traditional Puerto Rican music. Um, most people hear Puerto Rican music and they think salsa. Well, uh, Puerto Rican music is a lot much more than salsa. Traditional Puerto Rican music includes um, genres like uh, jibaro music. A jibaro is someone from the mountain. Um, um, includes plena, uh, P-L-E-N-A, uh, bomba, danzas. And so I love, I love traditional Puerto Rican music. Uh, I'm actually one of the largest collectors of traditional Puerto Rican music uh, in the U.S., Puerto Rico, et cetera. I have over 100,000 records in my basement. I have, um, I'm part of a consortium of collectors. Uh, you get the point. Um, uh, you saw 20 plus years ago, I helped to found a website with a couple of colleagues called El Proyecto del Cuatro, where you can learn all about traditional Puerto Rican music. Um, and so as part of all that love for music, uh, in college, I led a band. And then even after college, for about 10 years with my brother-in-law, uh, and uh, a couple of other friends, one of them, Miguel Martinez, who you can find online, he's a professional musician. Uh, we had a group called Grupo Jagua, and we used to tour all over New England and New York. And um, it was awesome. Um, I just didn't have the time. I didn't have the time because uh, I was also building my professional career. I had a family, but uh, music's one of my passions. And uh, it's fun, and it's how I sort of decompress uh, when I have some time to myself. That's awesome. I, you know, I love music as well. And I feel like music for me has always been a muse. I write novels. And so I get inspired by music and song. Um, and so it's great that there's other people who have a love and a passion for it. And now a word from our sponsors. Diversity, empathy, equality, inclusion, teamwork, and transparency. Those are words that mean something to me. And I hope they mean something to you. Those are six values that a people partner lives by every single day. Those are six values that I live by every single day, not only as the CEO of a people partner, but in general. If you are somebody like me who lives these six values every day and wants to share that with the world, I encourage you to purchase a people partner t-shirts. These t-shirts are navy blue, come in a men's cut, and range in size from medium to 2XL. On the front, you will find the diamond-shaped uh, rainbow hearts that we have in our logo. On the back, you will see the six values in rainbow colors. These t-shirts are uh, $30 and can be shipped anywhere in the U.S. 
If you're outside of the country looking for a shirt, send me a message. If none of these sizes fit for you, let me know and I'll add you on the list for the next order. I hope to see you all in your A People Partner swag and representing those six values that mean so much to us. Thank you for your purchase. Thank you for listening to a word from our sponsors. And now, back to your episode of All People Podcast. We hope you enjoy. One of the things you keep bringing up is your family, right? And so you wrote a book. Um, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said it's called Me Familia, right? So tell us a little bit more about that book. One, what is it about? Two, where can we find it, right? I want to make sure we can we can all go out and buy that. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. So um, uh, we, I say we, it's because it's about family. Uh, we wrote a book uh, titled American Familia. Um, it is a book about our family's journey from uh, working class poverty to where we are today. We're blessed, blessed beyond anything we could ever imagine. God has been good to us. Um, the book is essentially a conversation between a father and his two sons about how the family made it out of poverty. Um, and essentially, the story is, is a conversation narrating the journeys, the family's journey from essentially the grandfather to the father um from puerto rico to the streets of lynn massachusetts um and then it ends at the college graduation um i won't give you any more spoilers but uh the the book does a, it's 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 i'm biased it's a wonderful conversation it's an amazon bestseller you can find it on amazon or any book retailer uh american familia but the book does a really awesome job of balancing um a very personal story of poverty um, with life lessons along the way. Um, challenges, opportunities, mindset, social network, and from my perspective, the importance of faith and family. Uh, my family has been my anchor. My faith has been my anchor, still is today. We're a very close family. Um, from the days of deep, deep poverty in Puerto Rico, to work in class poverty and triple deckers in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, to uh, now a professional life leading a company, uh, married to the most incredible woman in the world, uh, two, two children who are awesome, uh, et cetera. The book does a really good job of balancing values, faith, hard work, perseverance, and the story of how a family clings together to, to enable the father uh, to have an incredible opportunity to live uh, a blessed life. That sounds like a really incredible book. I think it's it's great that it wasn't necessarily an autobiography. It wasn't necessarily, you know, you took it to a different place in sort of this fiction, nonfiction space, um, which I think is really fantastic way to tell your story. You said it ends the college graduation. I think you should have a sequel to tell us all about what happens after that, because I'm sure that story is equally as interesting, especially for people who have had similar journeys to you, right? We never walked the same journey, but, you know, who have similar journeys to you, who you probably have inspired along the way through that book and through your actions. Yeah, thanks for that, Lisa. It's funny. Um, I'll say two things to that. First, I have to give a big shout out uh, to my family, but also to the, the person who helped me write the book. Her name is Stacy Ennis, and she is incredible. Um, and so she has been saying the same thing, right? Hey, let's think about a part two, whether it's about your career. And as you mentioned, no one's career is the same. No career is ever linear. At least very few are, right? They all have turns and twists. Um, or a book around leadership from the perspective of a uh, an American who's Hispanic, who grew up poor, et cetera, and has now leading companies, right? So we're talking about that now. We'll see. Uh, we'll see where we go with it. Those are definitely books I'd add to my list of things to read and, and listen to for sure. Um, you know, you also, you talked about culture at the top of the call. And, you know, I really think that culture is um, sort of the life, you know, the lifeblood of an organization. And I think a lot of times what happens in companies is there's this culture that's developed when they start up, when they open, right? And then leaders change and things, you know, things move, organizations change hands and names. And we don't reevaluate that culture, right? You know, we don't reevaluate what are the leaders now passionate about or what is the changes, what are the changes we've made to also saying, 
what is the culture of our people that currently exists, right? Because the culture is made by the people that work there. It's helped formulated by them. And so it's going to be ever changing. So how do we, you know, adapt to that? And so I think, and I don't know if you agree with me, but I personally believe that culture should be revisited, right? To have this thing that says, this is our culture, but is that your culture still, or was that your culture before? Well, I'm going to disagree with you in a good way. Um, I don't think you revisit culture. I think you must do culture every day. I think, um, not I think, I, I affirmatively state that leaders must pay attention to culture every day. Leader, culture starts at the top. Make no mistake, Elisa. Culture starts with the leader. Um, if the leader's approach to an organization is, I'm going to make as much money as possible, and I'm going to churn and burn employees, that company's culture suffers and that company's future is not bright. But if a leader says, look, we have a great product, um, we're going to earn some profit, but we also have to be mindful that the company is made up of people and those people service our members or build our product. And the healthier those people are, the more, the more they look forward to coming to work, the better we're going to do financially. That leaders and that team and that culture will thrive, right? So you have to do culture every day. You have to be mindful of every day. How are we doing? Is something that I make a decision that's impacting our team? Is something happening in our team's lives, whoever the member is, whether it's customer service or medical management or marketing, is something happening that is having a negative impact on the team's operations or culture, you have to engage. The second part of this, and I'll be brief, but the second part of it is you have to engage proactively. If you let things fester in an organization, even at home, right, uh, they go south fast. And so leaders not just have to do culture every day, you have to engage proactively. What are you doing to advance better culture? And how can you proactively engage and keep your team engaged uh, so that they feel better about the work they're doing? I'll give you one quick example. When a decision is made that you know is going to be controversial, don't shy away from it. Meet with all your employees, all of them. Put them all in a room or on a Zoom call and open up the floor for discussion. My view is as long as they understand the why, the great majority will say, got it. I don't agree with it, but I understand now. Uh, very few, very few might disagree with you and, and never agree with you uh, and be un, you know, unhappy, et cetera. But the great majority will rally around the organization and the decision making because they understand the why. Now, that's not always the case, but in the great majority of cases. And so proactively engage people, especially when you're about to make a decision that's disruptive uh, or is going to um, encounter some level of resistance. Engage your people, talk through it. But culture has to be done every day. Yeah, I agree with you. Culture is, you know, it has to be there all the time. And as you said, it comes down from that leadership. If they're not embracing the culture that they want or that exists, right, then it then it's going to shift. And you have to either adapt to that shift and be okay with it, or you have to, you know, change what you're doing. But I, I did love what you were talking about in terms of when you had that difficult decision, right? I look at that in the, um, I've been a part of organizations where they've made changes and, and they've been very hesitant to uh, talk about those. But I think what you lended to, I did a, in my master's program, I, I did a project on Netflix in the early days of Netflix. And one of the things that happened was they they were being transparent about financial challenges that were happening. And they said, listen, we're, we're going to have to lay people off if something doesn't change. And when they explained to them that why piece, right, because you're right, if, you, if they understand the why, this is where ideas come in. This is where they say, how can we be a team player? How can we help out and, and make change? And this group at Netflix said, what if we all you know, did something in terms of compensation where we, you know, took less or what if we split out responsibilities differently, right? And so when they were actively, when Netflix leadership was actively saying, listen, here's the situation we're up against. Here are the decisions that we have already thought of to make, but they all impact you, right? What ideas do you have to, to make improvement? 
you know, understanding that why and then saying, we don't have all the answers, tell us what we should know. That's really, it shows strength. And as you said, people are going to back that not only because you're transparent, and but you're showing that you have this, you know, stakeholder mindset of like, how can we help you? And what ideas do you have? Absolutely. You know, when I introduce myself, um, from a leadership perspective, I, I tell everyone I work for my team. And people, some people think I'm just crazy, but I work for my team. Um, sure, I set the tone. Sure, I set the the, uh, the strategy, the direction, et cetera. But candidly, I'm here to make sure that the team is supported. I'm here to make sure that the team is performing at the highest level of performance and that we are growing and competing. But in order for us to do that, I have to make sure that they have what they need to do that. So the leadership aspect of culture has to be front and center. And as somebody who promotes people first cultures, I love that you have that mindset. Um, because what we don't often realize is we take and I've talked about this on a couple of episodes, we take these great thing doers, these great um, sellers, these whatever they are, and we say, you're great, replicate more people in your image and be a manager. But then we don't give them the tools or they don't have the desire to manage people because once you step into a role where there is management function of individuals, you no longer get to be the great thing doer that you once were because now your focus is people. And there's so much great things that can happen from that. But if you're somebody who that's not where your passion is or that's not where your strength is, it can be really sticky and really challenging. Boy, we could spend days talking about that. Because about the fact that once you become a people manager, the whole game changes, right? Because you're right. It's about focusing on your team. So we could literally, we could spend days talking about that topic. And I think that's where this new empathy piece comes in is, you know, I think in the, in sort of those shareholder mindsets, right, that we, that we encounter a lot. It's, you know, as you mentioned, profitability, right, and driving those things forward. And how can we make the most money? But when you really have this empathetic leadership mindset, you start to say, how does this impact my people? It, are we giving the, the employees the best culture that we can give? Are we then giving our customers the best experience that we can give? And one of my favorite quotes is when I've heard them talk about, you know, the way that you treat your, your employees might be indicative of how they treat the customer, right? So give them an example of how you treat your customer or how you treat them is how you want them to treat the company, the customers or the vendors or whatever else that they're working with. And so empathetic, kind leaders like yourself bring that vision too. There's no question about it. I worked for a wonderful, wonderful man, a former Senate president, Travellini, who used to say every day, you get what you give, you get what you give. And, um, he was absolutely right about that. So I know you also mentioned your your coach, David Dempsey. Um, you also talked about another quote in your community spotlight that you liked that he said, which is that people don't have to believe what you say, but they have to believe what you do. Um, and I thought that that was very interesting because I talk a lot about employee engagement surveys, particularly around leadership feedback. Right. And one of the things I always say to leaders who don't like the feedback that is given about them is because they say, that's not how I want to be perceived or that's not what I'm trying to do. I say, accept it as true. Right. If this is true, how can we make change? Because you arguing whether you believe it's true or not isn't helping. This is how the greater majority is perceiving you. This is what they believe about what you say and what you do. Right. So how do you fix that? And I, I love that quote because they have to believe what you do. And that's an example. That's where it says, you know, you can say all the great things you want, but your actions speak louder than words. That's the quote in a nutshell, right? Um, boy, that was, I'll give you the history of that quote. Um, so I played uh, high school and college football and David Dempsey was the person who introduced me to football and helped me, um, you know, launch my career in football and help me get into Bowdoin College, et cetera. Myself, I'll never forget, my sophomore year in high school, we weren't that good. We were like 500. Uh, and I remember a bunch of the guys talking about what they were going to do in the game the next day. We're going to kill them and we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. And I, I just remember Coach Dempsey uh, 
all he said, and the room went silent, was people don't have to believe what you say. They have mm. to believe what you do. And he walked out. <laughs> and I never forgot it. And the message was talk is cheap. Mm. Talk is cheap. And I live by that. I live by that to this day. And so when you encounter, let's talk about an associate engagement review. Um, yeah, if it's a bad outcome, pull everybody together and say, how can we do better? Where are we missing the mark? Mm -hmm. uh, and have a tough conversation, embrace it. And guess what? Just listen. Just listen. Don't try to influence. Take the feedback and say, okay, I need to get better. You know, I was recruited here uh, January of 2020 to lead this organization. I spent 60 days uh, doing external meetings, asking stakeholders, what can this company do better? What can we do better? Incredible feedback. And then I spent three months internally meeting with every associate, every team member. What can we do better? I walk around every day, twice a day. Where are we family? How can I help? What can we do better? Those ideas and suggestions fostered an incredible base of ideas and changes that have propelled us, right? And so um, I'm not saying we get it right every day, Elisa, at all. We don't. But what I'm saying is, to your point, engage and listen and foster a space where people feel comfortable giving you feedback, because that feedback is going to just make you better. I wish more leaders thought like you, David. Um, I try, I've tried to teach leaders over the course of my HR career to do exactly what you're talking about, right? How do you engage with your people? I worked in manufacturing and, you know, the one piece of feedback that we got from almost every employee was that the leaders are nowhere to be found. They're not visible. I don't know that they really understand what we do and why we do it, right? And then they took that and they said, okay, well, we're just going to show up on the, on the manufacturing floor and talk to people. And I'm like, okay, great, right? But you just being there, they didn't mean physically visible, right? They meant attentive and understanding. And just as you're saying, what are we failing at? What can we do better? How can I help you? Those are the three most powerful questions I think you can ask. Because those people that are first line on, on a service, on a product, whatever, they have probably you know, a lot of the solutions, a lot of the, the areas of frustration, all those pain points that we think of, because they're working with it every day. Sure, the leaders have vision, and they can help execute and bring those things forward. But we need those frontline employees to be part of the conversation. And we need to take it one step further to say, what, what can we do as an organization? And how can I help you to get there, even if that means I have to break down a barrier or, you know, I have to jump over a hoop, right? How do I get us there as a group? Totally agree. It takes time and intentional investment in making sure you're addressing people's needs. Now, remember, it's mutual, right? The associates and the employees and the team members also have to invest time on their side to make it work. So it's mutual. It's mutual. Right. And that's where the true and honest feedback comes in, in, in a culture where they feel that they can give true and honest feedback. Um, so I would love to have people learn, where can they find you if they wanted to interact with you? Sure thing. So uh, I have a website. It's uh, www.davidamorales.com, www.davidamorales.com. Uh, you can learn more about me, more about the book, uh, and feel free to send me an email, engage. Uh, I also do a podcast called Grid Machine DNA, uh, where I interview uh, your next door neighbor, potentially, who is doing some awesome things in the community you may not know about. So uh, happy to take emails or to engage with people um, going forward. That's really exciting. I'm glad you do that podcast because we need to shine light on more people doing great things, especially in the community. Um, as you know, I have a favorite quote. I have my favorite poet of all time is Maya Angelou. She will forever be my favorite poet, I think. Um, but she had this great quote that says, I've learned people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Can you share a time where that was true for you? The first time that I felt like I fa failed my family. That led to an incredible transformation in my life. Uh, and that was around 2017. 
Um, and I like to tell people that I'm no longer the person I was before that date because I failed my family. And um, it led to a transformation in my life um, that continues to this day. It led to my very strong relationship with Christ, but also a strong relationship with my wife, my parents, and my children, and my brothers and sisters. Um, and so that's how I think about that quote. Um, that that journey continues to this day. Um, and it's the reason why I'm so grounded on faith, family, and hard work. Because uh, I don't ever want to be in a place where I feel like I have failed my family. Um, so that's what the quote makes me think about. You know, that you're the first person who's ever said anything like that, which is really incredible. Um, we don't often think, when I ask that question, right, they think of a, of a time when something was done to them or um, something that, you know, was a, a compliment that they received that they had a feeling about. But for you, it, it wasn't just how it impacted somebody else. It was also how it impacted you and continues to, to you know, enhance your journey, right? Or or develop your journey. And, you know, I think that that's a really interesting uh, perspective um, yeah. that nobody else has mentioned. So kudos to you for being unique. <laughs> well, thanks, Elisa. That could be you know, a subject of a whole different discussion. <laughs> I know you could have, we could just have lots of discussions, David. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time to be here. We will put your website and your book details all in the show notes, because I want people to engage with you as much as they can, because you're a fantastic human being. Um, and I hope that I have the opportunity to see you on a panel again sometime soon. Sorry to those people that aren't in Massachusetts and might not be able to do that. But um, hopefully you're going to travel the world and speak one day. <laughs> thank you, Elisa. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm honored and humbled to be here. And number two, keep up what you're doing. Um, we need to have more positive conversations. And we need certainly more positive people like you empowering inspiring and encouraging other people to do good things so thank you for what you're doing thank you and so thank you everyone for listening and being here as i end every episode lead with empathy act with kindness bye y'all thank you for listening to all people podcast if you enjoyed our show i'd love for you to subscribe and leave a five-star review the work doesn't end here if you want to keep the conversation going Find me on LinkedIn or Facebook or visit my website, apeoplepartnerllc.com. Lead with empathy and act with kindness. Have a great day.